Hello from Austin and welcome to episode 216 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It's Monday, March 8th, 2022. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek. I, I got nothing. You got nothing. Well, we got a lot to I'm, talk I'm about. Like the base, I'm like the baseball season. I got nothing. <laughs> no, no opening day for Steve. Uh, we have obviously got a lot of weighty things to discuss. We have Ukraine topics uh, a number of them. We've talked about that a little bit before. Steve, I don't think we're going to uh, go back to the topic of you know, the crime of aggression that's going on. I think we'll talk about other things. Uh, last episode, if you didn't hear that, we talked about the crime of aggression that's underway with the Russian invasion. Uh, we want to talk about the uh, remarkable pair of state secrets privilege related decisions by the Supreme Court. So the Zubeda and Fazaga decisions. Uh, and then we've got a uh, Guantanamo transfer. Steve, we've got a Guantanamo transfer. That's incredible. I, I mean, I, I don't even know. I, I don't even know. That, does that still happen? It, it does. It does. Maybe it's going to happen more often. We'll see. So we'll talk about the latest numbers and developments there. Um, we've got a pair of vaccine-related uh, uh, rulings involving the Navy. Um and the idea of religious exemptions and whether courts can intervene uh, in a way that uh, overrides the judgment of the military on vaccine requirements. And uh, we've even got a uh, House Foreign Affairs Committee hearing on the 2001 AMF. So there's a lot of old school topics mixed in with some very decidedly 2022 type topics. Did I miss anything, Steve? Probably, but I miss a lot of things these days. Well, uh, we might be missing frivolity since... Uh, sadly, we, we were so kind of depressed by the state of the world. As we talked about what frivolity topics we could cover, we were kind of coming up short. And Steve, I think in 215 prior episodes, we've never lacked for uh, silly stupid Maybe one. to talk about. I don't know. I, 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 I never say never, right? The, the, you know, our catalog, I can't, I can't remember what we did. Well, by the end of the show, I have no doubt we'll come up with something ridiculous and, and completely different from these more True. serious topics. I, I asked you what your favorite flavor of Waterloo Seltzer is, and we both agreed that there's only one right answer. It's black cherry. Black cherry, yeah. Black cherry is just a reliable pick in general. Um, cool, black cherry Kool Aid. Did you ever have that back in the day? No, but I have had Doctor Brown's black cherry, which is the oh, only official, legitimate Brown's black cherry soda. And the black cherry variant—they're really good. I'm um, just—I'm now picturing myself sitting in the Second Avenue deli, like, oh, okay, uh, anyway. that's so good. Doc Brown's. Anyway. Do, do they still still sell Doc Brown's? Doctor Brown's is still a thing. I see it from time to time at Central Market. And if I still mm -hmm. drank soda, I'd be like, hey, but I don't. So I just. Right, our listeners are like, so it took you all of five seconds to start getting frivolous. <laughs> hey, this, this is why we don't need to plan frivolity. We are naturally frivolous. This is true. It's our natural state. We're reverting <laughs> to the mean. Episode 216, we're naturally frivolous. We are naturally frivolous. <laughs> I'm typing it up as we speak. <laughs> naturally frivolous. No uh, artificial you know what's not frivolous, Bobby? Torture. All right, we're going to talk. Well, I guess we're not going to talk about torture as such, but we are going to talk about the Zubeda case. You want to do we're Ukraine not first, though? And we're not, yeah, we, let's do Ukraine first. Fine. Okay, that's not frivolous either. No, definitely, most definitely not. Um, so there are any number of, of sort of subsidiary issues uh, past the big uh, question of the invasion itself. I feel like last week or last week, haha, last episode, we talked some about the prospect of, of Yusin Bellow, you know, war crime violations, indiscriminate attacks. We've certainly 
got reason to believe that some of that is happening now. Uh, to, to me, one issue that I don't recall if we talked about before that requires a bit of commentary is how these types of claims relate to the jurisdiction of the International Criminal Court. And here it's interesting. So neither Russia like the United States, not parties. Ukraine, not formally a party either. However, um, first for an initial limited period in 2014, and then in an open-ended way that is still going on, uh, Ukraine, as I understand it, uh, wrote a formal letter accepting jurisdiction for a period of time as to war crimes carried out in their territory. This all, of course, follows from the initial Russian incursion in 2014. Um, and that's still operative. So I'm not sure if there's anything else to say at this point other than I believe that the prosecutor's office has said that it's it's basically open to file on this. Steve, any other ob- observations about uh, possible war crimes, prosecutions, jurisdiction, other legal elements to this? I mean, you know, we have, I mean, there is that quirky thing that Ukraine has, right, um, uh, accepted the jurisdiction of the ICC. Um, but is there, I mean, anything, is there I, anything possibly not binding about that or some way that in the event that anyone ever sort of traveled somewhere they shouldn't and ended up in the dock, that they could challenge that? I mean, maybe, although, you know, I think, I think the much larger issue is how does someone get to the dock? <laughs> um, right, right, right. And as we know, there's there's really no. Well, it's it's actually interesting, right? Because this is kind of tied up with the question of the stability of the regime itself. And if uh, the Putin crime family falls, um, because at some point some combination of security actors and and others of influence in that system does cause a regime change, which I'm not claiming is is in any way imminent, but it's certainly more foreseeable now than it was a month ago. Um, then who knows? Maybe you could see a little bit of accountability, um, at least at the uh, at the Vladimir Putin level. Uh, I don't know that any kind of regime change in Russia would. I, in fact, I would say there's a little chance that any kind of regime change in Russia would result in a situation where any of the uh, the, the generals or, or others involved in making uh, combat zone decisions actually would be turned over to foreign authorities. I think, in fact, probably that's very unlikely. So it would only be more a question if they traveled to some place they shouldn't and got nabbed, which you know happens with low-level, for example, cyber criminals uh, from time to time. You know, Don't go to the Maldives if you don't want to get grabbed. Uh, but I don't think it would happen with uh, senior military officials here. Okay. I think that's right. Did you see, by the way, did you see the story today that one of the senior Russian generals was killed? I did. I heard that. Yeah, that's uh, pretty remarkable. I, th- You know, in, in some ways, it feels like we have this incredible insight into what's happening because there's so much social media uh, coverage of, you know, you get a lot of video on the ground. Uh, but in so many other ways, it's it's the fog of war like everything else. And it's, and it's really hard to know exactly what the status of, you know, for example, the convoy. Like, why, why is that that's still right. just on there? But but I do think I mean I do think though we're still at a point I mean you know I, I continue to worry that like in the long game you know this is just as with so many other military conflicts involving Russia you know the, the, just the the attrition favors one side over the other but yeah, for, for sure but, yeah. but there are so many interesting weird things that aren't happening that we thought would be right I mean like the you know the Russian communications problems um, that seem to be up the wazoo right the the lack of apparent air superiority. I mean, all this sort of strange stuff that I think is confounding a lot of, you know, outside analyses. Yeah, it's super interesting. And you're right about that. It's hard to know, you know, is there perhaps an element at some level of lack of will for the fight 
uh, precisely because of the outrageousness of what they're doing. I, I like to I like to think that that's somewhat hampering the the Russian esprit de corps and perhaps even some of the decisions being made about how hard to press things. Um, we'll see how long that lasts. Um, some of it, of course, goes to the credit of the Ukrainians themselves. Some of it goes to the credit of of the many countries, including the United States, that are, that are doing quite a bit to try to keep the Ukrainians in the fight, which is yep. uh, which leads to another interesting question. So let's go to this one. Um, there's been some interesting debate about possible legal boundaries constraining, let's take the United States as the main focus here, constraining the ability or the will of the United States to share certain things with the Ukrainians, to support them in certain ways. This, like, live tar- like live targeting information? Right. So there's two things that have been talked about a fair amount. One is the sharing that we're clearly engaging in sharing of uh, war material, uh, sharing weaponry and arms. And then the other is the question that, that resulted in a, a pretty remarkable sort of back and forth between Senator Sass and Jake Sullivan about whether the United States, for legal reasons, is holding back from uh, supplying the Ukrainians with uh, real-time tactical intelligence. Uh, and let's take that last one first before we get to the law, because there was an interesting New York Times story today that included a whole slew of people. Uh, Sanger, David Sanger was first in the masthead, but there were, there were a bunch of others in the byline that followed after that. Um, just kind of talking about the various different things the United States is doing, talking about the logistical uh, challenges to get all this weapons and material out in there. Uh, but on the intel sharing front, I couldn't help but notice there was a very conspicuous and I would describe well-placed uh, disclosure uh, that says that what goes on is that from satellites and other other sources, we are getting all this intel, and that a what was described as a you know a super rush effort is made to quote strip that that information of things that would reveal sources or methods, or unduly point the finger at us or something. I'm not sure what it is, uh, and then to combine that with other information and then funnel it to the Ukrainians, and it was described as taking an hour or two. I think is the way that the Times described it. And I wonder if, you know, is this sort of where the, the Sass-Sullivan dispute kind of comes down, that we've got a protocol in place that involves some amount of delay in order to obfuscate the platforms we're using to collect from, and uh, that that injects uh, an hour or two's delay, which in some cases won't be a big deal, but in other cases maybe makes it too perishable or it gets past the perish point uh, for tactical usage. And... Is the scrubbing that's described in the article, is that the fruit of a legal determination that somehow doing it more rapidly and, or I'm sorry, doing it in a way that doesn't include the, the scrubbing and that, uh, l- let me, let me step back and try to clarify what I'm saying. One possible account is this is classic sources and methods protection. It's not about legal constraints. A different account that's suggested or at least implied by the the Sullivan-Sass dispute is that in some way or fashion, it's meant to reflect a lawyerly judgment somewhere, a lawyerly judgment that if if you go, if you become too overt in the U.S. sourcing of these things, that it's problematic in some sense. We'll talk about how that could even be. Um, If it's the latter, that sounds pretty messed up because here we are with this whole big New York Times article describing what we're doing here. So it just seems kind of farcical and therefore unworthy if what's going on is some sort of sense that, well, we can't have it be too obvious that it's us. It's obviously us. So hmm. if that's the limit, that's stupid. Stop doing it. If it's a legitimate uh, perishability of sources and methods concern, that's different. That 
that's a classic reason uh, why you might have a countervailing value in here. Um, but let's let's tease out what could even be the legal objection here. And and one clue is that you also see people wondering: Is it okay that we're sharing all the weapons for that matter? Doesn't in the way this usually gets framed in the past week has been: Doesn't this a violate our duties as a neutral? Mm-hmm. B show that we're not a neutral, but rather a co-belligerent or C, constitute an armed attack or use of force or something else that opens the door, legally speaking, to some sort of adverse consequences against us. Um, I think the first thing to say about all of this is that anything we are doing is is part of collective self-defense of the Ukrainians if it rises to that level and is not itself an internationally wrongful act. The Ukrainians are the victims of an internationally wrongful act. And it's clear as clear could be, in my opinion, that anything we do to help them is also lawful as well. So I, I, I see that and I say it and I set it aside. Um, there's a really interesting series of posts on West Point's Articles of War blog where they're running an ongoing symposium surveying various international law issues. And our friend in, in Texas law uh, graduate, uh, Mike Schmidt, has a post, I think, just today that nicely distinguishes the neutrality decision from the co-belligerent determination and the use of force decision. I commend that to everyone to check out what Mike has to say. And Mike's making the point that uh, to say that you may have infringed your duties as a neutral does not make you a co-belligerent. Those are two separate questions. He's also pointing out this idea of uh, qualified neutrality as a more modernized or you know, lend-lease onward sort of take on how in a circumstance where there's another country that is a clear victim of aggression, um, that actually the law doesn't clearly require everyone to be strictly neutral. And there may be space to do the sorts of uh, lend-lease type activities or even arms supply activities we're engaging in here. Um, so anyways, I, I think all that's a pretty good insightful analysis. I just find it, I find it very understandable in fact, wise, that we would be mindful of where the red lines as a policy matter might be, where if you go one step further, it precipitates maybe a cyber attack or some offsetting harm that we don't want to deal with. It's not, not, we're not ready to incur that cost. But to claim that there's legal boundaries or that we might be doing something wrong legally, I find that, uh, that argument unpersuasive. What do you think? Yeah, I, think, I mean, I think it's efforts to try to sort of Yes, elevate policy disputes to the level of legal ones, but well, it wouldn't be the first this time. Gonna, that, yeah, this is going to get a lot worse. Happen. No, this is going to get a lot worse before it gets better. Um, what do you project is going to happen? Do you want to do you want to prognosticate in a serious no. way about what's happening? No, here? no, because I don't. I I don't think it's appropriate. I I, I guess I just you know I. I have a lot of feelings about this. I, I guess I just think that the. Like all the reasons why we're not doing more, I think makes sense to me. But I also just think that, you know, there's going to come a point where not doing more is going to mean that we sit idly by while a whole lot of people suffer. Indeed, I think that's already happening. Well, I think the uh, critical thing there is that th- this is in the realm of of the policy judgments, and I don't think the law is driving these decisions. That's right. That's right. And so I can say it's over my head because it is. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> there are other podcasts for this. Oh, many many <laughs> listeners say is sitting there thinking, you guys never let that stop you. Um, that's right. Well, that's although, although, and also, it's, it's the rare thing that goes over my head. <laughs> what about this? Um, that was a height joke, by the way, not, a, <laughs> not, not, not an arrogant 
joke, although I guess that too. It's true. I, I forget it works on both levels. I forget sometimes that not all listeners understand how uh, how incredibly tall you are. Are you six eight? Six eight. Six eight. Five yeah. five twenty. Or as these two Italian teenagers once said when they walked past Karen and me on our honeymoon, "Do a meter." Do a meter. <laughs> That's awesome. To which, if I knew how to speak Italian, I would have said actually two point oh three meters. Oh, yeah, like round round up. Or I guess they rounded down. Um, you know, I I'm a pretty tall guy myself, but uh, true, I we have never... a, we have a decently tall faculty. We do actually, but I know that's just it. Like I'm pretty tall. I'm I'm a little under six four. I do not feel tall around you and many of our colleagues. How, t- how tall is Bob Bone? Was he six? Uh, six Bob, oh, Bob's like six two, but Jordan is what, six, really? Jordan, Jordan Stecker is like six four, six five. Um, James Spindler is like six five. I mean, we have we 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 you know if if we could go back in time, you know, we'd have a pretty good fac- basketball team. I was going to say like uh, um, yeah, my best basketball days are way behind me. Uh, how about this? There are uh, lots of stories about Americans and persons from elsewhere responding to uh, the call to go over there and fight and help defend the Ukrainians. Ooh, are we about to have a discussion of the Neutrality Act? Yes. I knew you'd know oh. where I was going with this. So, oh, my gosh. Just, I wasn't even prepared. I, I knew I knew you didn't need to be. So we have these statutes. I'm sure at other times on the show years ago we talked about this. But do you want to give us uh, sort of Wait, a let me see. Is, of, it, is, it, is it 18 U.S.? Is 960 the Neutrality it's, it's, Act? Yeah, 9, 958, 59, 60. There's that whole little slew of them, and they interact in funny ways. Right, right, right by the Logan Act. It's all part of Chapter 45 of Title 18, the Foreign Relations um. Crimes. So, 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 where do you want to start with uh, well, all of these good stuff? You know, maybe we should. Okay, so we've described the situation. So, listeners, let's say you're sitting around thinking, like, okay, what's going on? Going on over there is outrageous, and I'm prepared to go over there to take up arms. All right, let's walk through some of these really old statutes that were designed early on in the Republic to try to help ensure that the United States would preserve its neutrality when wars bro- broke out elsewhere. And so uh, let's start with Section 958, Commission to Serve Against a Friendly Nation. Uh, if you're with- well, you, you, are, you, already, you already skipped over that. You, you already sort of jumped over the most important, against a friendly nation. Oh, yeah. Did I, did I not say friendly nation? Oh. No, you did. You just I would have emphasized friendly. Oh, yeah. Yes, yes, yes. You're right. Commission to serve against a friendly nation. Okay. If, if you're an American citizen, so if you're a lawful permanent resident or other person in the United States, no sweat, but any citizen in the U.S. who within the jurisdiction thereof, that is important, within U.S. Important territory, caveat. accepts and exercises a commission to serve a foreign prince, state, colony, etc., in war against da, 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 some country or opponent with whom we're at peace, then you've got some legal risk. Not that I think anyone's going to prosecute any of these offenses. but uh, right. So I think this one is the least interesting of them because uh, I don't think any of these people who are thinking about going to fight for the Ukrainians are from within the United States accepting and exercising any commission from the Ukrainian government. If you're thinking about doing such a, a commission, wait until you're outside the United States. I was, was going to say, leave the country first, people. Yeah. So that's pretty straightforward. <laughs> um, By the way, section- this podcast does not constitute legal advice. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We are not rendering legal Ooh, advice. That, that might actually have to be our episode title. This podcast does not constitute what, – what, this podcast does not constitute legal advice. Uh, so true. This podcast – does not constitute. Yes, I am taking the notes as we record. Okay, that's awesome. Um, Section 959, enlistment in foreign service. Whoever within the U.S. enlists or enters himself or hires retains another to enlist or enter himself 
to go outside, I'm paraphrasing now, go outside the US in order to enlist in the service of a foreign nation, da, 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 you have exposure. So a lot of weight here on the formalities of enlistment or entering into the service. Steve, what do you think? That sounds like that's a little bit harder to navigate around. Um, if you if you do it with again, if you do it within the United States, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, whoever within you're right, you're right. Don't do it within the United States. So right, like like go to Canada first. I mean, this you know it's like World War One again, right? Go to Canada first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, all right. Um, but also, I mean, could we also like the Biden administration's not prosecuting, and even if someone doesn't I read agree, the statutes, you're first. no fun. We don't get to if you, if we jump to the no one's going to prosecute you to so do what you want, then we don't have the excuse to rehearse these statutes. We're all right, good. fine. All right, section nine sixty expedition against friendly nation. If you're within the United States and you knowingly begin or set on foot or provide and prepare the means for blah 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 blah, a military or naval expedition or enterprise to be carried on from, from thence. I love Aha. it. From thence. Thence, of course, referring here to with the United States yes. against the territory. Da, 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 da. So, so if you're going you to you're you're join a private army to go fight alongside Ukraine, just don't leave from here. So could you argue, or could it could a overzealous prosecutor, Steve, argue that um, if you form the intent to do all this and you buy up your gear and you pack and you go from here to go do it? Um, but you the know, I think that will work because I think it's events. two elements, right? It's yeah. you've yeah. got to form this knowing beginning. You've got to you've got to have your knowing beginning from here. And it has to be and it has to be from thence. Right. And so the enterprise has to, so we want to picture is sort Here's, of people mounting up on the edge of the Louisiana territory or something, <laughs> gathering Aaron their Burr. forces and Aaron from Burr. there incurring into foreign territory. Um, but what about cyber, Bobby? Okay. So that was in the next thing in my list. So you've also got this call from the Ukrainians for people all around the world, hackers of the world unite. And here's our list of Russian targets, by the way, some of the things on their list, civilian targets, um, but setting that aside for the moment, uh, could you argue that that violates this provision? So is that a military or naval expedition or enterprise? And perhaps you could argue that it is not, um, that it is not such. Uh, obviously, there's the context of armed conflict, which makes it feel otherwise. But then again, I believe that the Ukrainian entity that put out the call for the International League of Extraordinary Hackers trademark. Um, I think that that was a call issued by the Ukrainian uh, information ministry. So that, that actually colors it, right? It makes it sound like it's uh, uh, coming. The call comes from a non-military entity, despite the context of war. So yeah. uh, again, this is all hypothetical. No one's getting prosecuted for that. However, Steve, could they still be prosecuted for, in theory, violating the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act? Um, because certainly the, the request was, uh, go forth and violate the computer fraud and abuse act as to the following list of Russian entities. Where's Um, Orrin Kerr when we need him? Exactly. Let's see. I think we could drop the rest. There's a lot of armed vessel stuff. Suffice it to say, right, that, that a lot of these statutes are written in ways where if you were sufficiently clever, you could avoid even the specter of liability, let alone the political reality that you're never going to be prosecuted for violating them. But once again, this podcast does not offer legal advice. Does not offer legal advice. So 
the, uh, the, the, the savvy listener might be thinking like, wait a minute, over the years, you guys have said things about people who go to train and fight for the Islamic State and they always get prosecuted for material support. Uh, suffice to say that uh, the material support Ukraine statute, is not a, Ukraine is not a designated foreign terrorist. Exactly. Organization. There's no designated foreign terrorist organization here. Uh, if someone says, OK, but wait a minute, what about the other, the 1994 material support statute, 2339A? Where, where the material support doesn't have to go to a DFTO, Designated Foreign Terrorist Organization. Rather, it needs to be in knowing or intended aid of various predicate offenses. Yeah, so I don't think any of those predicate offenses are, are, uh, are applicable here. Um, and I think that kind of runs the traps. We'll again say that none of this is likely to be prosecuted anyways. But, um, but if you are, friends, if you are going to go abroad to fight and or hack from your basement, please consult a lawyer, a real one, not podcasters. And any other Ukraine topics, Steve? Probably, but we also have some some closer to home topics to cover as well. I agree. Let's go to the highest court in the land. Uh, we have well, we should mention too. They uh, they restored the verdict or the uh, the sentence in the Boston Marathon bombing case. That's worth noting, uh, isn't that right? Did, yeah. So yeah. So the, the in certain, yeah. So the Supreme Court um, reversed the First Circuit decision, which had thrown out the death sentence. So it has the effect of basically reinstating the death sentence. Okay. And then in in uh, other news, as we said at the top of the show, the Zubeda decision, the Fazaga decisions. Zubeda's decision, it's a little more, a little longer, a little more involved, a little more division in the court. So maybe we should talk about that one first. Um, Abu Zubeda, who had been uh, famously or infamously subjected to all sorts of waterboarding and, and other so-called enhanced interrogation techniques while at, in a black site situation in CIA custody, has a, has a case going in Poland that's an attempt to secure the prosecution by Polish authorities of Polish persons who allegedly assisted the CIA in his detention and interrogation. And as part of that overseas foreign court proceeding, uh, his lawyers moved using the the procedural vehicle for trying to get help from an American court to secure, uh, basically to conduct discovery in aid of the foreign litigation and made a series of requests um, that all had in common that they were, they, they were of and concerning the alleged Polish black site. And the, uh, the gut and, and this was directed towards the two, uh, are they psychiatrists or psychologists, Steve? I don't remember which, but um, the two guys who were sort of the chief uh, architects of the EIT's uh, enhanced interrogation techniques program. The government intervenes, uh, basically trying to quash on state secrets privilege grounds, and the Supreme Court, with the majority, uh, agreed. And and that and and further decided that was the end of this particular litigation, since the lit- the big litigation is a Polish proceeding that continues onward without this evidence, at least for now. What they were ending was this sort of rifle shot. American collateral litigation about that specific set of uh, discovery requests. Um, Steve, uh, what what's your take on on the Zubeda ruling? Boo! <laughs> so you don't like it. I'm, I mean, I'm shocked. I'm shocked. Um, 
I mean, I, I was sorry. Siri just chimed in there for a second. So, you know, I, someone wrote on Twitter that when when Gorsuch and Sotomayor agree, <laughs> like that should tell you something. And and I think their dissent. I'm, I'm not sure what that tells us. Well, something. Um, yeah. So listen, I mean, I mean, you know, you know my views about the state secrets privilege, right? Like, I yeah. I, I I I accept that it's a thing. Um, I think it serves important purposes. I think there are contexts where it is essential to protecting the national security and foreign policy interests of the United States. Um, and I think that this proceeding is a little Kafkaesque because everyone knows what the state secret is. So you've gone um, right to the heart of the dispute. And I should have unpacked that a little bit more. Let me just do that real quick. That There are a few things going on in the case, but the the thing that is the center of gravity is the claim by Zubeda's lawyers that, look, it, there's all sorts of reasons to believe that indeed there was a CIA black site in Poland. The government's response was, be that as it may, whatever may be out there, people have speculated or people have observed, there's been no formal decision by the government to admit or deny this. And the court backs them on that principle that they can't be made to admit or deny it, even in a circumstance where there is a lot of stuff in the public record talking about a Polish uh, black site. So they're, so they're accepting the formality can be maintained even when the, uh, uh, the sort of the more lay person's take on this is, oh, come on, everybody knows, as as you just expressed. Because everybody knows. Yeah, and so the rule is, the freshly, the freshly reaffirmed rule is that the government nonetheless gets to stand on the formality of whether it has officially acknowledged it or not. And so from there, there's some subsidiary issues. There's a dispute about whether the somehow there's a way for the case to go on. The majority's view is, the majority's view does have a nuance in it. The door is wide open for, for the litigants to come back with a separate and fresh invocation that seeks information about what happened without requiring a uh, admit or deny position on whether it was in Poland. So right. I assume that they will come back with that unless they just don't really care. But but apparently a big part of what drove the majority's analysis was at the oral argument, um, there were some statements by the attorney that were quoted, I think, twice in the majority opinion about how, you know, this what we care about is what happened. We, we all know it was in Poland. We care about what actually happened to him. And I think the majority's view was like, oh, well, if that's the case, then we're not going to force the government to admit it or deny it. And as long as you're trying, as long as you're running your discovery request through the lens of things that require that admit or deny, then you can't have it. But they left the door open as I read it to refile in a more nuanced way, and I assume they will. But then why isn't the response, then why isn't Justice Kagan right? So Justice Kagan concurs in part and dissents in part, right? And and her concurrence is that she agrees with the principle of non-acknowledgement. She agrees that that's a valid basis for the state secrets privilege, but she thinks that it's pointless, like it's a waste, right, to make them file a new claim versus to remand to let the litigation proceed and see if they can amend because right you're allowed to amend complaints once usually as a matter of course right like why isn't that the right answer yeah i don't i don't know that i could make a hard case for it being right or wrong like either one seems like a perfectly available path to go it won't be that cumbersome for them to refile um, it would be more efficient to follow the kagan approach as you say uh, but it won't be you know something they can't do or somehow will really be prejudiced in a significant way by having to go the more cumbersome route um, and then you've got uh, the next case, Fazaga, which presented a, a very, I think, interesting, maybe more interesting variant of all this, which was uh, the question of whether 
in a uh, proceeding in which someone invokes FISA and is arguing that that there's a violation under FISA, does the does the FISA provision is it Steve is it 1806? Am I remembering yep. that? 1806. Yep. Uh, does it effectively either expressly or implicitly override uh, the state secrets privilege insofar as it calls for some amount of ability to challenge uh, classified information or to to have access to and challenge classified information in the context of a case where the government is uh, either trying to use FISA-derived evidence or in the much rarer case, such as this one, where the litigant, despite the government not being in the process of using that information against them, the litigant nonetheless has reason to believe they were surveilled in a way that violated FISA. And and the court basically says, well, look, we think the right reading of the statute, it's kind of a clear statement rule. If if Congress Congress may be able, they, they're careful not to say this for sure. They, they suggest maybe Congress could override the state secrets privilege, but we're going to say they can only, they only will be understood to have tried it in the first place, if they use a clear statement to that effect, and 1806 doesn't have that, as they read. yeah, why why would why would we have civil remedies for FISA if you know I mean surely Congress could has to be you know we have to hold Congress to a clear statement rule. It's not like they would have created past FISA. How, how why would they've ever passed FISA to create remedies for foreign surveillance abuses? I just I don't I don't understand. Are you surprised? It's uni- it's unanimous, right? I'm not surprised because I think the alternative was worse. Like I think, you know, we talked about this a bit after the argument. Like I think this was the compromise, which was, you know, the government hasn't actually invoked the state secrets privilege yet in this litigation. Um, and so, you know, the sort of the question of whether this case can go forward really is still very much ripe um, in ways that it's not in Zubaida. And so I think this was this you is know, the kick it down the road. Versus versus holding that not only does the does FISA not displace the state secrets privilege, but the state secrets privilege bars this case. <laughs> like so, that would have so, been... Fiz- so what you're telling me is this is just Fizaga one, and Fizaga two, two is going to be the bigger deal. I, I, yes, but I mean, can we just back up a second? I mean, this is among some of the other things that drive me absolutely nuts about the current faux commitment to textualism. Um, is what happened in this case, right? So the majority opinion by just the, the the court's opinion is by Justice Alito. Alito, by the way, who you send to write the textual opinion when you're not really sure you buy the textualism, um, right? Alito writes this opinion that is completely oblivious and indifferent to why FISA was enacted in the first place, right? And sort of micro parses text and you know provides plausible if not necessarily self-evident accounts of why the statute doesn't actually clearly displace the state secrets privilege but bobby i mean you know this history as well as anybody right the the purpose of the foreign intelligence surveillance act was to rein in perceived abuses of foreign intelligence surveillance authorities and to provide mechanisms for redress do we really think congress was you know just like forgot about the state secrets privilege or do we think the congress thought that by providing this express statutory remedy and this express judicial procedure for balancing the government's interests in you know highly sensitive national security information congress thought it had accounted for it um so although i probably have a lot more sympathy with the unanimous court than obviously you do i i think you've got a really good point there about um the need to account for what was actually going on in the 70s at the time fisa was enacted um i've written as you know a lot about in one article wrote a lot in one article. Does that count as writing a lot? I don't think that counts as writing a lot, but in one article I had a lot to say about the evolution of the privilege through the courts 
over the centuries. By the way, was I disappointed not to get uh, a cite to that article in either of these cases? Yes, I was. Oh, well, damn it. Anyways, there's a there's a passage in the article. This is uh, the basically a George Washington Larview uh, piece. And, and I talk about the 70s as a huge wave of state secrets privilege litigation. And I kind of emphasize this. Um, it was all in the aftermath of, of course, the early to mid 70s revelations about surveillance uh, type abuses in the United States, the stuff that really, you know, kind of set the table for what eventually became FISA. And there was a lot of civil litigation that was precipitated by the exposés and the things that leaked out. And in those cases, you got the first big sort of modern wave of state secrets interventions by the court. And, and the reason that's so significant at the time, this was when people, there, there was a famous uh, political science quarterly uh, article about the state secrets privilege during the early Bush administration years, basically saying like, hey, this thing's never really been used that much. It's being used a ton now and, and suggesting that the quantitative aspects of how it was being used somehow suggested there was something funny or different afoot. And I was contesting that narrative by pointing out that, no, no, you you get the quantity of state secrets privilege invocations in proportion to that era's level of cases that come to light about classified activities that result in possible lawsuits. And the 70s were a case in point. You had a big wave then. So I think you're right that at the time of the drafting of FISA, um, there's it obviously could have been more clear, but they were aware. Everybody was aware in the late 70s of the state secrets privilege. I mean, not, not only that, I mean, but Bobby, you know this, that when Congress adopted the federal rules of evidence in what, 72 73, like not long before FISA, right? One of the fights was over whether to codify the state secrets privilege. Yeah. Imagine if we actually had a federal rule on point for that. That would be something. It just, I just, I just think like this kind of textualism really just sort of drives me nuts. It's like, it's textualism completely divorced from context. And I feel like, you know, I understand why the court wanted to rule this way in this case, but it just, I would think that if there was one thing on which like lefties and righties could agree about in the national security space, it's the need to have meaningful redress mechanisms when the government abuses FISA, whether it's a Democratic administration or Republican administration. So, you know. So we have other cases that will infuriate you. But before we get to them, let's note that uh, uh, Katani, who at one time was somewhat famous in national security law circles as the so-called 20th hijacker. Uh, Kitani was a, a person associated with Al-Qaeda who had tried, who had actually flown, I believe he got all the way to the airport in Miami, Steve, uh, prior to 9-11. Mohammed Atta is, is known to have been there to pick him up, uh, but he couldn't clear customs, as I recall. I forget what it was, whether he was on a watch list or something. Uh, later on, he is uh, later on. He's captured. Steve, do you remember the circumstances? What we know the circumstances of his capture? I should, but it's late. It's late. Yeah, so we give a recording at night. Um, in any event, uh, he ends up at Guantanamo, but not not before having uh, an extremely aggressive experience with what we talked about earlier: the uh, waterboarding and enhanced interrogation techniques, and the rest. And uh, Steve, do you want to talk about uh, his current situation in state and what, which has contributed to him being transferred now? Yeah, I mean, so he is, he is severely medically disabled, um, 
right? I mean, he has what spinal issues and a whole bunch of other serious medical conditions. Um, and so there was right, Bobby, this was, am I remembering right that this is where all the mixed medical commission litigation had been focused for a couple of years? I and, can't remember if that was about him or another detainee. Yeah. It's hard to keep all these straight. In any event, so where was he repatriated to, to Saudi Arabia? Okay, so I don't know that that presages any sort of run of transfer. You know, he was always he was always like he was always a unique case because of the medical issues, because of the United States' obligations to prisoners who were medically disabled, et cetera. Yeah. Um, you know, it's worth noting. I mean, this is the second transfer of the Biden administration. It's only the third since President Obama left office in January 2017. <laughs> so at this rate, Guantanamo will be empty. When? Yes. Yes. Yeah. But. Well, um, oh, watch this space. Now, um, we said at the top of the show we've got some court rulings in cases involving Navy personnel. The Navy has a has a mandate for vaccination. You have a uh, number, in one case, uh, involving a number of uh, Navy SEALs. Um, you have a number of Naval personnel who are raising various challenges in an effort not to have to choose between uh, as, as, is, as is said several times in the opinion, jab or job. And um, some of them at least are citing religious objections relating to you know, various various theories. Uh, Steve, do you want to try to unpack basically what's at stake in these rulings that seem to override the Navy's judgment? I have such strong feelings about these cases. So, so we should say this case is one of a number of cases like these that, you know, sort of either the state of Texas by itself or private parties or the two together, Bobby, are filing in these like divisions of Texas district courts where you can basically cherry pick which judge you get to hear the case. Um, this is a Reed O'Connor special. So the basic claim is that these service, these SEALs, I mean, these are not just, you know, any service members, Bobby, this, these are like, you know, the creme de la creme, the front line, the tip of the sword, all that stuff, um, that these SEALs um, are entitled to interpose a religious objection to the Navy's requirement that they receive a COVID vaccine. Um, and I believe, if I understand it correctly, it's because the way the COVID vaccine was developed involved the use of fetal cells in the research. Like, it's not a religious objection to all vaccines. It's a... It's, it's a, specifically about those derived from stem cells. Yes. Now, mind you, there are... Stem cells or at least fetal cells. Yeah. Fetal cells, right. Now, I should just say, I mean, Bobby, the list of over-the-counter medication um, that is likewise derived from research based on fetal cells is pretty lengthy, and I somehow doubt that these folks avoid those medicines. They might. But they might. They might Fine. be really rigorous about that. Yes, I will just say that this there's a very selective quality to this particular religious objection. I, you know, I, I think it's better to just assume that it's all in good faith and just I, ask I, the question I am whether not saying, it should. Listen, I am not saying that this is the ground on which to rule against these cases. I'm just saying that, like this, this you know, this is not a claim that all vaccines violate my religious beliefs. Okay, that aside, um, what drives me absolutely up the wall about these cases because there's another one in Florida. Um, is that they are based on a view of the court's role vis-a-vis -vis the military that, Bobby, as you know, I have long argued for in other contexts, and the courts have uniformly rejected, um, which is that courts owe no deference to military decision-making. Um, and in this context in particular, there is a fairly on-point 1986 Supreme Court decision called Goldman versus Weinberger that specifically holds that what would ordinarily raise 
free exercise concerns in the civilian context doesn't apply to the military. So how does the Fifth Circuit in its per curiam decision in the SEALs case, I know there's a reference to Goldman in there. Do you recall, how do they distinguish it? They basically say that RIFRA came later. So RIFRA is the Religious Freedom Restoration Act of 1993. Um, RIFRA is a response to the Supreme Court's 1990 decision, Employment Division versus Smith. Um, and you know, folks who have taken first-year con law might say, well, didn't the Supreme Court strike down RIFRA in the city of Bernie versus Flores? No, that was only as applied to states. RIFRA still applies to the federal government. Right. Um, and RIFRA basically says, hey, you know, government, you can't interf- you can't pass rules that burden religious practice unless you can show that they survive strict scrutiny, unless they're narrowly tailored to fulfill a compelling government objective. Can I, can um, I just, for, for those who aren't aficionados of, of the uh, peyote case, employment division yes. Smith, basically the idea, this was a Scalia opinion, if I'm not mistaken, that had said, in effect, look, generally applicable laws, uh, Steve, how to describe it? It, w- it was a very uh, supportive of the state type of ruling, right? That the standard for actually winning your case on religious free exercise grounds when it's a generally applicable law was uh, rational basis. The the state, the state won as long as they had a rational basis. And so the statutes attempt to say like, well, we can't overturn that, but we can by statute impose a higher statutory uh, form of free exercise protection that gets you closer. I don't know if you'd say strict scrutiny or if it's, is it calibrated at intermediate or strict? No, it's it's strict. It says narrowly tailored in the statute. Yeah. Okay. Um, Yeah. So that, so that makes sense, right? That if Goldman was a free exercise case and here's a statute that sets the bar higher, then it does seem like it would require a different analysis. So let me just say, right, that the claim that RIFRA over so so the argument here is that RIFRA doesn't overrule Goldman because RIFRA can't overrule the Supreme Court. It just comes in with a amendment. different source with a right. higher rule. That RIFRA applies to the military, um, right, and sort of displaces the traditional deference that the military is owed in this context. Um no appellate court, and I'm not aware of a trial court that has ever specifically considered and accepted that argument, right? That 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 claims that are due. I, I am not aware, Bobby, of a case that stands for the proposition that a claim that would have been doomed under Goldman um, is viable because of RIFRA. Now, maybe, right, someone can argue plausibly that there's never been this kind of square on conflict. I don't think that's true. There was a case, gosh, there was a, a calf case a couple of years ago about someone, about headgear. But anyway, the, the sort of the long and short of this is, at most, the argument here is based on new law, right? At most, the argument is that RIFRA, uniquely among federal statutes, right, um, under a, a sort of um, subjects a military commander's battlefield decision about combat readiness to strict scrutiny. They, um, don't they deny? Don't they deny that they're talking about battlefield decisions and they they but, separate but what's that? The, out? But what, how do you separate? But but what's the logic? I mean, yes, they say that, but what's the logic? Like the, these are seals. These are the people who you're sending into you know pretty hot zones with very little notice. If the if the Navy isn't allowed to, to to determine what makes them combat ready, how is that different from frontline allocations of personnel? Well, I, look, I, so I think battlefield decision can be logically separated from questions about personnel availability for sure. But um, it, so if I, I just want to make sure I'm tracking this right. So you're saying that you, you've got a clear problem. Their, their claims are doomed under Goldman, under the free exercise clause to this day. RIFRA is the only thing that can make a difference. Have we got any other prior case law that addresses the question of whether RIFRA applies at all, even in the first instance? To the military, or is this new law, or is so, this a new interpretation? 
I'm, I'm pre- there are cases applying RIFRA to the military. That is okay. to say, in context in which various military policies um, have been, I, I don't know if subjected to RIFRA is right. Part, I mean, Bobby, part of it's because the government has consistently provided religious exemptions, right? And the Navy has here too. The claim, like the Navy has offered at least allowed people to apply for religious exemptions. The claim here is that these guys are entitled to have that application. Right. The, the court goes out of its way to say, like, there's no way it'll be granted. It never gets granted. It's all a sham, basically. Which, but again, so so just like, listen, if this is the beginning of the federal courts completely revisiting the military deference doctrine, because yeah, you're there for it. I'm there for it, but do you do you believe <laughs> no, this is I don't the think beginning? So at all. No, of I don't course think so. not. And so no. this is all just it is it is of this it is so of a piece with this pattern of outlier district judges in Texas issuing outlier rulings that the Fifth Circuit refuses to stay, and then you put the Biden administration in this you know sticky wicket of like, do we go to the Supreme Court or not? And this time they did. I mean, so you know today as we're recording this, they filed an application in the Supreme Court to stay the district court's injunction. It's only the fourth time they've gone to the Supreme Court for emergency relief in you know a year plus um, compared Where are to the like, prospects. I think they're decent. Um, I mean, yes, this is a court that has bent over backwards to accommodate you know religious liberty claims, especially right. arising out of the COVID pandemic. But this is also a court, Bobby, that has a number of justices who believe very heavily in deference to the military. Yeah, no, um, I, I think I think you're right that this is sort of an, a curveball. From that perspective, and I could see it going uh, the the military's way. Hmm. But I just like it's just this is like yes, it, we should have a conversation about the military deference doctrine. I think a lot of mischief is hidden behind the military deference doctrine. But Bobby, when I'm thinking about the like, if we're thinking about where the military deference doctrine should and should not apply, right? It seems to me that like, hey. It should not apply when, like, military hospitals commit malpractice, right? Like, that seems like, you know, I don't know, I would defer to the military when doctors at military yeah. hospitals commit malpractice. Um, maybe it should not apply to sexual assault at West Point. Like, hey, that's not necessarily a, you know, like, but military deference when it comes to the Navy's determination that it wants SEALs to be vaccinated, I just, like, no, I, I think you're, you're going right. to have a military deference doctrine. What else is it for? I, I think you're right to point out that like, there's a spectrum of circumstances that run from things that are wildly unrelated to combat to, to the question of which hill to take next. And and at the extremes, it, it's obvious what should happen. And, the, and But most of the interesting cases are in the middle. And I think you're right that although I think it, there's a clear difference between battlefield determinations and battlefield judgments and this deployment or, or combat capability readiness question, I nonetheless agree that this is down towards the hotter end of the spectrum versus all these sort of day-to-day running of institutions in the peacetime United States questions that you're talking about. So it's, so I agree. It is remarkable to see the military losing out on its, on its judgment and being second-guessed and not getting the deference when you're on the sort of more, uh, more deference-friendly end of the spectrum. That is remarkable. And so I, can, I agree with you that it might well get overturned. Well, that'll be that'll be interesting. Sure um, will. More fodder, more fodder for my shadow docket book, of which <laughs> I now have four chapters complete. <laughs> Volume three. Seriously, <laughs> the book never ends. Um, the never, and, and indeed, I, I feel like you need to sing "Never Ending Story" right there. No, I'm okay. Um, <laughs> so, someone on Twitter just said, "Who are you anyway, Steve Vladek?" Like, and and I, I, I wrote, I wrote back two four six zero one. The 
Valjean at exactly. last. You know what? You know, you know what we should auction off at the next like TLF auction. Huh. We should auction off you and me doing the confrontation from Les Mis. Which okay, I'm curious. Uh, I'm game, and I'm down with that. Uh, who? Which side would you take? Which voice? I'd prefer Javert because my voice is pretty deep, but I, you just went right to Javert, so I think we might both be fighting over. <laughs> I was kind of going for the coin on that one. Too. I was trying to avoid the uh, the high end, uh, but I think we can do um, that. That'd be pretty great. Um, or or terrible. <laughs> that boy's good. <laughs> good and terrible. That would be so true. Well, let's do a real quick note on uh, the House Foreign Affairs Committee hearing earlier, uh, late last week, on the 2001 AMF. They had a couple of they had a quartet of administration witnesses, including the DOD General Counsel Carolyn Crass and uh, the acting legal advisor of the State Department Richard Vizek. Uh, apologies if I got his name wrong. Plus Deputy Secretary of State Wendy Sherman and the Assistant SecDef for Special Operations and Low Intensity Conflict Chris Mayer. Um, pretty interesting. So there was there there seemed to be bipartisan unhappiness uh, by the representatives about the uh, lackadaisical approach of the administration to getting out the uh, semi-annual requirement of the so-called Section 1550 or Section 1285, depending on which source you're getting it from, the report where the defense, so the Armed Services Committees and the Foreign Affairs Committees are supposed to get every six months this uh, breakdown of operations undertaken under the AMF that emphasizes which countries these operations take place in and which so-called associated forces are currently the object of attack, including legal and factual grounds for believing that the AMF applies in those various circumstances, and even adding whether or not the government currently considers for each location, is that considered currently an area of active hostilities? And there's supposed to be an unclassified version of this. Um, this goes right to the heart of a very old and it's an evergreen topic. You know, how much should the public know? I, you and I both agree a lot about who we claim is within organizational scope at AOMF and the newer topic of where does the government believe it has ongoing active hostilities? Um, so there's bipartisan complaints about this and, and sort of promises of better compliance. And then uh, there was... Yeah, exactly. There was also bipartisan wait, wait, interest wait, in mean, reform. Wait, you mean you mean reporting requirements don't actually produce the detailed, transparent information that Congress expects them to? You know, I, I don't know the last time I've seen this, but every now and then someone will add up the reports that are required, like the sheer number, and then they'll calculate the hours required. It's really extraordinary. But this one, unlike this a, a lot of them, this one actually would perform a really the, the unclassified version would perform a really important public function. Now, yes. there was also bipartisan interest by the members, it seemed, and, and according to the witnesses, also by the administration, the, the old, yes, we all agree we should have a new replacement AUMF that's better tailored. Um, you know, that's been said for a long time. There was dispute about whether it should have a sunset clause. The, the administration witnesses were talking about how we agree there should be periodic review, but don't make it an actual sunset. Um, and you know, there you go. Uh, what the hell is the difference? I mean, I, I mean, like, well, what the difference period- is it's the, it's the difference between a game of chicken versus a game of check. No, 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 I mean, I mean, I, I don't mean, I don't mean the difference between periodic review and sunsets. That difference uh, I get. I mean, what the hell is the difference between periodic review and what the hell and, and this this thing we have now? Like, I mean, right? Because like, in, 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 in well, they're not because they're not getting it. 
okay, great. Hey, please comply with these, you know, empty procedural obligations oh, please, that don't actually please, require us to do anything. Please, sir. Please, please sir. Please. I mean, <laughs> you, I just can you like, swear it at UMF? There, there's no inter, like Bobby. There's no Goldilocks. There's no intermediate position here. Like the only way to actually force the administration, like you the only way to force the issue is a sunset. Because without a sunset, Congress has absolutely no incentive to reform because nothing's going to expire. There's no capital. There's no points to like you know the only winning the only winning move if you don't have a sunset is not to play, and Congress is not going to play. So, so the only other thing I heard or saw in the breakdown, because I didn't actually listen to the whole thing myself, but um, Representative didn't? Castro, yeah, shock. Uh, Representative Castro apparently asked, has any group ever been delisted from the list of associated forces? And the answer was no. So that not too surprising, but also very interested. Um, so yeah, I don't I look, you and I talk about this once every like dozen episodes. I don't think we're going to see any AUMF reform. We're just not. Not anytime soon. They'll do a hearing once a year or so, and they'll have a similar discussion. <sighs> I know. I know. So, Steve, we've gone through our topics. We were a little frivolous along the way, not much. Are you feeling inspired? Have you watched anything fun lately? Do you have views um, about the NCAA tournament? Have you read so anything we, good? We, Karen and I watched. Karen and I watch. Karen and I love the marvelous Mrs. Maisel, um, and so we've been watching the new episodes as they've been dropping on Amazon Prime. Um, so good, so been nice. Um, I have to say, season four, Bobby, is even better than any really? of the prior. Yeah, season four. The writing. I, I don't know what they're feeding the writers on that show, but <laughs> who boy, they, it's gotten a little dirtier too. Well, and it's gotten a little dirtier too, which I think has has only given the writers it's all it's playing more even more to the writers' strengths. You can sort of tell. That's really funny. Um, well, I've been saying so, for years I would catch up on that one. I, I promise to. If you, if you'll promise to watch Boba Fett, so we can talk about that. I know. Well, so, but I mean, do you know? The, okay, here's proof of how busy I am. Okay, you ready? You ready? Lay it on me. Do you, do you know what premiered this week? No, I do not. <laughs> Season two of Picard. Oh God! I can't believe I didn't know that. Okay, how about that? Can we I haven't, I haven't, I haven't watched that yet. Like, what the heck? Well, we need to coordinate on that so we can talk okay. about it. But, but perhaps we need to get on that. Do you think you can make time for the first episode? Yes. So, so next week is spring break. So I suspect we are not recording, barring. I was going to say barring a national security emergency, but hey, <laughs> barring a war with the Russians. Oh boy. Yeah. Um, Let's hope we're not recording. If we have to, if we have to do this during spring break, friends, that's not good. All right, um, but so why don't we why why don't we hereby commit to each watching at least the the first episode, maybe the first two episodes? Let's try to catch the first two so we can so we can All actually right. stay relevant. So, so friends at home, if you want to watch the first two episodes of season two of Picard between now and I don't know the twenty first or twenty second, um, sign up for Paramount now. Seriously, um, what else is frivolous? Mm. Um, frivolous how about hey you know it's frivolous the idea that the constitution makes state legislatures and not the state supreme court the authoritative expositor of state election law sorry <laughs> couldn't, so couldn't help myself <laughs> what what about march madness <laughs> what about march madness you, you have a um you have an I've early been, i've paid i have paid like so i watched a little bit of the north carolina duke game saturday night you know Oof, coach wow, k's last yeah. home game um, that is literally Bobby, the first college basketball game I've watched any meaningful part of all, all year. Like that's how far out of college basketball I've been. Sorry. So we should, uh, we should test how much that hampers or helps your 
tournament picking. <laughs> I'll probably have a great bracket then. <laughs> um, my my sense from what I gather from, I mean, I still listen to part of the interruption all the time. So my sense from PTI, um, listen because I, I I do the podcast version. Um, my which by the way is just they record they just put the audio of the show on a <laughs> podcast. Um, so my sense that my sense is that there's no dominant one team that there's a dominant sort of group of seven or eight teams. Um, any one of which could win the tournament, but no one of which is expected to win the tournament. Does that sound consistent with your understanding? Yeah, yeah. I'm not following that much closer. I'm almost more interested in uh, UT baseball. Um, mm. Although I, I will say the UT. What is baseball? <laughs> baseball is where UT has had a really nice start to the season. Um, also, like Austin FC soccer, ten goals in the first two matches. It's unbelievable. Steve, maybe you and I should try to go to an Austin FC game. What do you think? Uh, you know, so you know, for 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 my birthday, um, Karen got tickets. Um, oh, you went through our friends Jamal Alsafer and Lori Higginbotham. Um, oh, that's great. Jamal cool. and Lori, um, actually, not only through them but with them. So we got to go with two like super dedicated Austin FC fans. Bobby, it was so much fun. Yeah, that's a great, great fan experience there. Um, it was fun last year when I went, and we were terrible. Must be so much more fun now. Um, we'll see how long that lasts. Um, and, and that may be all the frivolity I've got, unless you've got. By the way, Karen, Karen just tweeted, listening to Steve Vladek and Bobby Chesney recording NSL podcast in the other room. And from what I can tell, there isn't all that much security discussion on this forthcoming episode, but there's a whole lot of frivolity. So tune in if you enjoy that sort of thing. Hey, totally inaccurate. Yeah. Inaccurate. We actually have Everybody. really little frivolity. Um, I think, Steve, what we need is for our listeners to help us. Um, obviously, we'll have Picard, but I'd really like to get back to some of our early frivolity. Like, do you remember we had the all-time classic frivolity debating what counts as a boy band? Like, what are the necessary and sufficient conditions in which mm. band satisfy them? Yes. We need some music stuff. We need to get some music theme frivolity. I think our All right, team, well, if, if we still have any listeners, this is, this is a good test for our listeners. If we still have listeners... And if you've made it all the way to minute 63 of this episode. We love you, so. Um, a, we love you. B, send send food. Um, <laughs> and C, give us suggestions for uh, best of slash, you know, is it, an, is, it an, is it an A or a B type of debates? Like the kind of, the really, the frivolous frivolity of days of yore. Um, this is really funny. Your wife followed up with the, I'm about to get yelled at in real time. <laughs> 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 That's pretty great. <laughs> Here, wait, can I? Is it okay with you? I see a picture of my my desktop. Can I tweet it back at her? <laughs> Please. <laughs> okay. Oh my god, this is great. Uh, this is good. very meta. I think we should hang up before we end up having like this recursive, you know, blowing up the world. Like sing- we we've reached the singularity. There we have. Okay, we've got some. There we go. <laughs> All right. Well, while people that. are listening to us recording ourselves talking about tweeting in response to what we're talking about on this podcast, I think it's time to go. Um, <laughs> he is at Bobby Chesney. I'm at Steve underscore Vladek. We are at NSL Podcast. And Karen is in the other room. So <laughs> that's going to be fun for me when I sign off. Stay safe out there, everybody. <laughs> Adios.